2: moment the SS noticed that there are seven dwarves, uh, they knew that uh, it would interest uh, Mengele in order to um, score points with him. They kept them aside and sent uh, one of the soldiers to wake Mengele up.
3: That was Yehuda Koren on the sad story of a group of Holocaust victims.
4: They saw the Viking invaders very much as bloodthirsty wolves, these sort of animalistic base humans.
3: And that was Yanina Ramirez on the Anglo-Saxon view of the Vikings. But as we'll discover, relations between the two weren't just defined by bloodshed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of all of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The stories of people with disabilities during the Holocaust are often harrowing. The Ovitz family, of which seven members were dwarves, were among those transported to Auschwitz, where they were subjected to often bizarre experiments. Yehuda Koren and Elat Negev are the authors of a book documenting the family's experiences. They spoke to our Reviews editor, Matt Elton, about their research.
5: Could you explain a little bit about the background to the
2: Avitz family? Um, You know, many books have the um, byline saying that it's remarkable, it's unique, extraordinary and incredible, uh, but we feel that uh, this story is really uh, one in a lifetime. We're all familiar with the legend, uh, and the fairy tale of um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And, and we thought that, you know, it belongs to the Walt Disney World. And all of a sudden, we came across seven dwarfs in real life. And the Ovich family um, from Romania, from Transylvania, which is in the north of Romania, uh, is the largest family um, recorded. So, so in in reality, it so happened that seven in the fairy tale is also uh, the number seven in uh, in reality. So this is the largest recorded family of dwarves. The other thing, they were entertainers, and they had their own traveling theater and named it properly the Lilliput troupe. And they. The other thing which is really unique in, in their story, usually dwarfs are part of a whole show, of a circus event, of a vaudeville show. They're coming along, uh, doing three or, or two songs, and, and, and then disappear. They had the whole uh, platform for themselves. I mean, they provided a two-hour program of songs, music, um, skits, and it's the only uh, all-dwarf company uh, in the history of uh, entertainment. And the third thing which has really made their story uh, remarkable is the fact that um, what happened to them in the Holocaust. Jews were sent to the death camps and they arrived at Auschwitz, and as a rule, one out of ten people who arrived were sent to the camp inside to do um, slave labor, nine were sent immediately to the gas chambers. So in, in in the history of a family, it's a miracle if one person survived uh, a place like Auschwitz, let alone two. In their case, we're talking about the only family who entered Auschwitz, and all uh, the members, the seven dwarves, and five of uh, their entourage, which were other members of the family who were of average height, they all survived. So it's the, it's a, it's a miracle in that sense. And they were sent to the camp because they were Jews but they survived because of the dwarves. So how did you first find out about their stories?
6: Well, um, a few years ago, we read uh, a note, a footnote, actually, in a history book, which said that at the beginning of uh, Israel in 1949, there was uh, a group calling themselves uh, the Lilliput of Auschwitz, and that they were famous entertainers. Uh, it sounded odd to us, you know, that people would come um, to, to hear a group which had the Auschwitz in the you know, in their a title, in their um, commercial name. Uh, and uh, the, the, the person who wrote the, the history book, he wanted to show that at the beginning of, of Israel, people talked uh, very freely about the Holocaust, and only later they stopped, they became uh, shy about it. Uh, so we, um, we went uh, to the newspapers of the time, and uh, we discovered that there was a troop, but it was called the Lilliput Troop, Auschwitz was not in in the title, but so the historian had made a mistake. But that's what really started out on our course. Um, we found the, the family name of each and uh, looked through the telephone books, and uh, there were about a, a dozen uh, in Haifa, in the town where it was said that they came from. And we started phoning, and I think it maybe it was the seventh of eight phone eight pe- uh, people that you spoke to, and I I was the one who asked who was talking because you know you. Usually when a woman calls it, you are less suspicious. You don't think it's a burglar planning uh, to enter your house. <laughs> so so I, I asked her, are you of the famous uh, Ovich family who had the Lilliput troop? She said, yes, I am. I am the last one. And they said, we are journalists, we are writers, we would like to come and take your story. And she said, by all means. And I think the next day we were already there. And that's how uh, our journey started.
5: you. So kind of heading back to the start of the story, um, what was their act like? What did it involve?
2: Um, We're talking about uh, a family, the father was a dwarf and he um, had from from two wives, the first one died at a very young age, ten children, seven of them were dwarfed and three were of average height. Uh, It's a remote uh, part of uh, Romania, it's still very remote uh, nowadays i mean it's it's like the um uh the middle or the beginning given the of the of the twentieth century if you go uh to this place nowadays there was no way that seven dwarfs in in a place like this uh, could make a living out of of you know cultivating the land um they couldn't do any other profession like you know being i don't know teachers or or what have you because uh they were shorter than the average uh kids of uh age six. Uh, but they were beautiful and very musical, musically talented. So it was their mother's suggestion that they will uh, look for a profession which will enable them to be together, to live together, to make a living uh, together, stay together in a way, support one another. And the stage seemed the, the, the perfect uh, option. Um, on stage, you are applauded. People uh, honor you, respect you. You're not isolated. Um, and that's how it all started. So they established um, their own group uh, they were playing on child-sized uh, instruments, um, violins, a guitar, ch- um, cello, and, 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 and drums and, and local instruments. And they combined a program of songs uh, of the time, um, a lot of music, um, many love songs, very sentimentals, um, but also funny songs. And in between there were skits and they gradually uh, started performing in the nearby villages. And with success, they expanded the horizons and, and traveled as far as, as Prague and Budapest. And it's a very remote place. And uh, I can't believe how a person who was living in such a remote place could think about the whole world. I and mean, people who live there now um, hardly went to, to Bucharest, maybe once in their life. And these people were thinking that, the whole world belongs to them, and they more or less managed to conquer, you know, quite a, uh, a wide territory with their performances. And they and they stayed in the village throughout their life, and that was the base from there. They emerged on the journeys, usually lasting three weeks, and then when the tour was over, they returned to the to the village in a way to to rest and then embark on uh, on the next tour. They done everything themselves. I mean, they took care of you know preparing the costumes. Um, their equipment, um, re- have written the repertoire. Um, everything was done uh, by themselves, including you know, managing and uh, uh, ordering the, uh, the events, and they were in charge of, uh, of the time schedule. Um, and the interesting thing is that the average height and members of the family, they were the ones uh, working behind the scene. The dwarves were um, at the front and everyone else was behind the scene as dressers, drivers, um, um, porters and what have you. And uh, four of the female dwarves got married and their husband joined the the company and they worked in the company in various uh, jobs. So it was kind of a a communal life and um, a family enterprise. So
5: we've touched there about their life um, before the war did the outbreak of the war have much of an immediate impact on the family
6: uh, it's quite uh, surprising that the outbreak of the war had no immediate uh, influence on them uh, they began they had to change their uh, identity cards but uh, somehow they managed to um, to get cards we did not uh, have the word jew in it so uh They continued working before because when the war uh, started, there there were anti-Jewish laws saying that uh, Jews are not allowed to to work with uh, non-Jewish clients. For example, a doctor was not allowed to treat uh, uh, the non-Jewish patients. A lawyer could not. Could only work in the community, and artists could only perform to their own um, country, to their own religion, uh, and of course, it, you know, Jews were so poor and so uh, so. In difficult situation there that, that, uh, uh, show business was not very much, it was not high on the agenda. There was no money to do it. So if they had only to rely on Jewish audience, they would have uh, starved. So that's why it was so important to them to continue even to, to, uh, to cheat the authorities in order to, to continue, um, working uh, with the all audiences and uh, it was quite hard because they were observant Jews so usually they did not perform on the the Saturday on Shabbat so whenever they, but they couldn't say that they were Jews so whenever there was uh, a show scheduled for Friday night or Saturday they would uh, of course accept and tickets would be sold but then just a few hours before the show there would be a note from a doctor from from saying that uh, due to the sudden illness of one of the members the show is cancelled and postponed to Sunday so it was uh, the they really had to work, you know, between between the um, between the covers. And then in 1944, when Hungary really invaded the uh, the, the place where, where the, trans- the the place where they were living, uh, they were taken with other Jews to the ghetto, and from there they were transported to Auschwitz, uh, where they arrived on the uh, 19th of Ma- of uh, May 1944.
5: Just kind of rewinding a little bit, um, you touched there on the fact that they avoided having, you know, Jewish
2: put on their identity cards. Do we know why that was? Yes. um, It's again the thing that their number played for them. Um, All seven of them with the beautiful dresses and uh, makeup and um, voluptuous hair. They, They stormed the office of the bureaucrats in Budapest. And in a way, I think they, they confused the um the people who were working there with their appearance and their um, smiling the cheerful uh presence uh, that they managed in a way to to get an idea uh without stating that they were jews that that 's the story they told us that they um, um, make a whole uh, performance in the uh, in the office. And the um, bureaucrats were nice to them and issued this uh, certificate, which enabled them to, um, to perform for three more years. So we're talking about 1940 until uh, March 1944. Europe was at war. Jews in their millions were, were killed. And they continued their uh, life as usual. They, they, they said that they had uh, an audience that uh, waited for them. And they had to perform. They only canceled their tours in Czechoslovakia, which was under um, uh, Nazi's um, occupation. But they could perform in in Hungary and, and Romania. The only thing is they, they uh, not only they, they stopped, stop of, of course performing on um, um, S- um, Sabbath Eve and on 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 the holidays, but they also stop uh, talking among themselves in Yiddish so that they are not going to be recognized. So they they. They put a a whole show off that they are uh, Romanians and the moment they they felt that uh, there's some suspicious about their identity, they simply wiped the place from their map of uh, performances. But still, they managed to uh, drag on until Germany uh, invaded uh, Hungary and then they realized that the game is over. Um, It's worth touching upon at this point. I mean,
5: who did you talk to to get the information in this book? Is it just one person or several people?
6: Uh, We talked to um, dozens of people actually. Mm -hmm. From the family itself, there was just one survivor, Perla Ovid. She was the youngest. She was born in 1921 and she was the the last one to die. Uh, So we spoke to her extensively. Uh, We also... uh, found people who were with them in the village, people who were with them at Auschwitz, uh, people who knew with them from other places. And we went to historical documents, uh, for example, testimonies that the Germans took from uh, camp survivors, not necessarily Jews, you know, in the, the early 1940s or people who were at the camp or gave testimonies to the uh, Frankfurt prosecutor or for, for various reasons during the time and they mentioned dwarfs. They, f- they mentioned the, the Ovitch family so uh, we took these testimonies too so it was uh, we corroborated everything uh, against uh, the other we went we found the documents uh, in Germany and in Poland so it was it's really not a memoir of one person or one family even but um, like a very a multi-layered account.
5: Um, What impact do you think the passing of the anti-Jewish decrees of 1944 had on the family's relationship with the other villagers? We've talked about how they always returned to the village um, in between their tours. Do you think the relationships
2: soured as a result of this pressure from outside? I don't think so. I think that they were all living in complete denial that uh, a war is taking place far away from Um, their place, if there were rumors they dismissed it, if uh, they actually came across eyewitnesses to some of the horrors which were done by the Nazis, uh, everybody was sure that um, these people are uh, out of their mind uh, and hallucinating and uh, simply mad people they they lived in complete denial uh, that the war is not going to reach their remote area and and it's amazing but life for them continued as usual
5: Um, So, can you talk me through what happened um, on the 15th of April, 1944?
2: On the 15th of April, they started their journey to um, Auschwitz. They arrived on the 19th. Um, It is well known that um, the doctors, the physicians, who uh, the Nazi physicians who were uh, working in the camp um, did the the, the selection on on the ramp. And it's it's one of the... um, doctors is the um, notorious uh, Dr. Joseph Mengele, um, and nearly most survivors uh, describe how he was standing there on the ramp and selecting people, um, the few, the very few, to, um, to life into the camp for labor, and the majority straight to the uh, gas chambers. It so happened that on the night when they arrived, he was not uh, on duty, he was fast asleep uh, in his uh, uh, room at the SS uh, camp, but the uh, SS guard on the ramp knew of his uh, um, collector mentality. That he was really um, selecting people with all deformities, uh, growth defo- um, um, deformity, um, tall people, obese people, uh, short people. Every, everyone here has kind of a, a deformity. Uh, he was collecting it, and it was uh, they, were, they were all kept in in one place in in the camp, which was known as the uh, Mengele's uh, Circus or Mengele's Zoo. Um, The moment the SS noticed that there are seven dwarves, uh, they knew that uh, it would interest uh, Mengele. In order to um, score points with him, um, they kept them aside and sent uh, one of the soldiers to wake Mengele up. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm returning to the number seven. Um, we believe that if they came on their own separately, one one um, dwarf in this transport, the other one in another transport, they would they would have been disappeared in the mass. Usually, it's, uh, each train, each transport uh, consisted of three thousand to, to four hundred to four thousand people, so they wouldn't have been noticed if they came on their own in this uh, in the chaos which uh, existed. Um, on the ramp, but the fact that there were seven uh, it, it attracted their attention and uh, even if, they, if it was just one dwarf uh, I, th- I think that the SS wouldn't bother waking Mengele up for one dwarf, and we know that uh, of cases where dwarfs arrived on their own and they were sent immediately to the gas chambers, but for seven um, dwarfs and um, other members of the family who were of average height that seems a very safe reason to uh, work at Mengele and this is exactly what happened. Um, he came immediately when he heard that he had seven dwarfs waiting for him with uh, more members of the families who were of average height and when he saw them he was delighted and, and he said that uh, I have now worked for 20 years. There's some debate about a story in the book about
5: the, how the family were almost gassed. Um, what do you think actually happened?
2: Um, the story, we, we're trying to approach a Quite an unusual approach to writing about the holocaust, and, and that's adopt a, a critical approach, which means that uh, to cross examine every testimony, usually when you hear um, a survivor um, testify about the horror that he went through, uh, you just you know shrink in your chair um, um, you cry with him. Uh, You bow your head to to the horrors that he describes and and you don't question him and you don't uh, argue with him or um, you don't doubt what he's um, describing. Um, But we've decided that we want to check as much as one can every fact, every story, not only uh, the stories that the family told us, but there were other stories that people um, told or said about the dwarves and we wanted to check as as one can do it. We, We were not in Auschwitz thank god and and uh, but we still we wanted to to treat it as uh, another history case that need to be uh, checked perla her sister and three other members of the group described to us in details how they were taking um, to a building um, gas started uh, they, were, uh, they were ordered to undress, there was gas coming out from the ceiling and they were started uh, fainting and uh, shouting and then all of a sudden they heard a voice from outside crying, where are my dwarves, where are my dwarves, and they were the doors were open and Mengele was uh, at the door um, and they felt that he was really their saver, he, they, he saved them from um, imminent um, death. Um, so, we had five testimonies, not just one, but we still decided that we are going to check it. And the way we did it is very eerie. Um, we had to learn how to operate a gas chamber. And we uh, read the German manuals and the orders of the camp in order simply to know how one operates a gas chamber. And we came to the conclusion that gas chambers were not operated on a small group of 20 people. If 20 people were to be uh, to die in a place like Auschwitz, they, uh, it was uh, more economical for the Germans simply to shoot them. Gas chambers were operated on masses of people, 500, 2,000, not on a small group. And then there were other procedures that I don't want to go into, it was eerie enough for us to study, it. how do you start, when can you stop, who's going to stop, and we came to the conclusion that it wasn't, uh, it couldn't couldn't have been a gas chamber. But we were sure that they were not inventing a story, something happened to them that made them believe that it was gas chambers, and we tried to look for what uh, it might have happened. And we, um, so again, we learned the, the whole structure of the camp. And we realized that what happened is that they were taken to a sauna for a disinfection. And when you are tired, and when you are a dwarf or, or a child, the effect of the heat, which comes from the water, is more is similar to that of the of the gas. And you can faint um, if you have open wounds. Um, you'll be suffering. So it was a sauna which really caused them to to uh, to faint and not um, a gas chamber. Um, we wrote it in a book, um, and we described and we, we have tried to explain why they came to this uh, conclusion that it was a gas chamber, um, and we found that it is Sona. But we remembered the, the, one of the lessons that we were taught by a very prominent professor of history, of Holocaust studies, who said that wherever you are talking to a, a survivor, um, don't argue with him. So we didn't uh, te- um, you know, confront them with our finding and say, OK, you are not, um, what do you have to say about that? We simply uh, wrote it in a book, leaving it to, to the reader to come to the, more or less the same conclusion. You touched there
5: on the impact that all of this would have had on the family, which must have been huge. Do you think they had an awareness of why they were being spared death?
6: At first, uh, they had no awareness why they were being spared death but uh gradually it it became it became known to them because mengre quite uh, soon after admitting them into the camp mm-hmm. he began experimenting on them mm-hmm. so uh just about a week or two after after, after being left alive, they were, began to be taken to labor, to, to the clinics and laboratories where they, uh, two, three times a week, uh, blood was taken out of them in great quantities, uh, because Mengele was trying to, to break the genetic code and we thought that every information would be in the blood um, they had to sit naked on benches for long for whole days until the, f- the first one got, uh, was uh, examined until and, and the last one because only when uh, in the afternoon where everything finished they were taken uh, back to, to the bark uh, healthy teeth were plucked out of them because he wanted to, to, to check the teeth and hairs and uh, all kinds of psychological and Physical tests measurements uh, quite um, quite harrowing and quite and the, very often they fainted because they were hungry and cold so so it was so much blood was taken out of their small bodies that um, it was really hard and when when they w- where water was poured over them to awaken them and then uh, and then they continued their siphoning out their their blood so they they began to understand what was their Point which was uh, experimental uh, subjects, guinea pigs for Mengele, and um, also they, in a way, they had uh, a bit better conditions than other prisoners because the Jews, the people who were in the camp, their hair was shorn uh, so that there will not, not, not be lice, you know, in the hair. They and they had to wear uh, prisoner uniform. Now, because uh, mancle didn't want them harmed um he let them have their own clothes because uh, ordinary prisoners um clothes will not fit them because they were so small he needed their hair for his experiment so they had their still their hair and um he also um uh, wanted them as as kind of uh, curiosity, as showbiz, uh, there were still his living dolls, and he often brought uh, SS men and other doctors to see her, to see them or to 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 examine them. So he asked them to be always uh, made up and with their the hair done. So in a way, they were part show business people; the other part was guinea pigs.
5: So I mean, how how long did this process of experimentation go on for? How many months are we talking?
2: It started, in, they arrived in, on uh, May 19th, uh, the camp was uh, liberated January 27th, uh, 1945, I think Mengele left a month earlier. So it's about um, a good seven uh, months. Um, they also were afraid that of what's going to be the next step. Um, so one of the things that they really feared, that it was a mixture of um, dwarves, And and people of average height, uh, members of the family and other people from the village who joined them. And they were afraid that um, the girls were in the group and the young women were with them. Mengele will uh, turn their womb into uh, a laboratory, forcing them to have sex with the male dwarves to see what's going to be the the offspring of this uh, pregnancy. So they very much feared um, this next step. Um, and Mengele uh, did various um, sexual um, experiments uh, on other dwarfs uh, in the camp and they fear that this is going to be the next uh, step and again um, Perla told us that uh, yes Mengele said that I, I have worked for 20 years, it doesn't mean that he needs us for 20 years, he can finish uh, the work on us in a year or so and then the next step will be to kill us and uh, skeletonize us and um, send our Skeletons to be presented in anthropological uh, museum in uh, Berlin, and he and she said this is was the most frightening thing. We we, we accepted the, the fact that we are not going um, to get alive from from the camp. That will uh, sooner or later we will be killed like the rest of the Jews who arrived at Auschwitz. But the idea that our bodies, that our, our skeleton, our bones will be presented for years to come in a museum and people will come and, and stare at us, it's, that's something that we, uh, it was impossible to, um, to tolerate. So it was kind of a, a constant fear. We were living from one day to another, hoping that uh, somehow uh, there will be a miracle and it will be over.
5: What happened to the family as the war came to an end?
6: Uh, the walk came to an end for them in January 1945, and with the people, with the average height, people in their group, which were altogether 23, they um, almost walked in the snow. They, the, the. They, they Tall people served as human horses, and they pulled a bread cart with the dwarves on it, and uh, they managed to get to, to Krakow, and then, uh, and then afterwards they they got a train and they uh, arrived at the village about eight months uh, later. Uh, everything was looted, and uh, they felt that there was no no one to no reason to stay in the village because most of the Jews had been killed and it was really too painful. And uh, it took them about two more years in Europe until they... Uh um, decided to go to Israel, which has just been established in uh, just before May 1949. They got an invitation to, from uh, an impresario to go to New York and another invitation from a Russian, uh, from the Russians to, to join the Bolshoi, but they said that they are not, they will not, uh, Want to be anymore in among uh, non-Jews, and they decided to go to Israel, and uh, they arrived in in uh, May 1949, and uh, three months afterwards, they were already on stage performing in the largest uh, halls in Israel, halls where the Israeli Philharmonic had appeared, and uh, they in spite of everything they had been through, they were strong enough to to resume their life and to, to, to be triumphant. And uh, for five more years, they uh, continued touring the land and uh, performing. And then they be- began to be, some of them beca- became quite old and they were uh, the tolls of, uh, of of the camp, also t- the It took uh, their toll on their health. So they retired and then they bought two cinemas and for the next 15 years they operated the cinemas uh, and um, continued living together in the same house like they did before.
3: That was Yehuda Koren and Elat Negev. Their book, Giants, the Dwarves of Auschwitz, the Extraordinary Story of the Lilliput Troop, is out now published by the Robson Press. And now we have a short advert. For 20 years, the exploits of Marcus Didius Falco have captivated readers. Now, Lindsay Davis brings us the Ides of April, the start of a major new series featuring Falco's adopted daughter Flavia Albia, who, in defiance of tradition, has taken up the family business. It is festival time in ancient Rome, the games of Ceres are about to begin. But, as people get ready to celebrate, killer prepares his slaughter ground. When news of strange deaths all over the city reach Flavia Albia, she must tear herself away from a new love affair to hunt down the murderer. The Ides of April is out now in all good bookshops.
0: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel History historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring Need to hire? You need indeed. Before our next interview, I'd like to quickly remind
3: you that our April issue is still on sale. It's a Tudor special where we delve into the downfall of Anne Boleyn, consider how the Spanish Armada might have succeeded, and then sit down for a Tudor-style breakfast. Plus, we explore life in a Roman home, revisit a key tank battle in the Second World War, and discover some of the finest Norman churches. Our April issue is on sale now in organ newsagents and, of course, in our many digital formats. When we think of the Vikings in Britain, the popular image is often one of hostility and violence. But there was another side to relations between the Norse invaders and the people who they conquered. Oxford historian Yanina Ramirez has been researching the cultural impact of the Vikings in Britain. Do you feel that our view of Vikings to is a bit overly concerned with all this killing and pillaging and things like that?
4: I really do. I feel very passionate about this actually. I think that the the way that English history has been written, the way that the textbooks tell us it plays out is that the Vikings are this is this sort of anomaly, these raiders that come and leave and there is this emphasis on the symbolism of the longboat bringing them in and taking them away again. But that really is is very far from the truth. There's if we think about the Anglo-Saxons in comparison when um, when we talk about the way that the Anglo-Saxons and Dukes came over from the Germanic homelands and settled in the British Isles. It is really termed a settlement. It is seen as, um, you know, that the, the population, the native population, were profoundly influenced by these incomers, and they changed the complexion of the British Isles on the back of that. But we don't have the same um, sense of transformation when, um, in the way that people talk about the Viking impact they did stay, they did settle, they did intermarry, they profoundly affected the genetic makeup of the British Isles and the cultural and social and political makeup as well. Um, And I really think that that is something that gets underplayed time and again. There's this sense of the Viking being something alien and the word Viking itself coming with all these um, associations of barbarism and paganism, but they were... They weren't a race as such. The word Viking doesn't refer to a place. It refers to an activity, going a Viking. And it's perhaps more accurate to talk about Norsemen, more people of the Norse, of the North rather, because you have Vikings coming from Denmark, Vikings coming from Norway. These are not this is not a racial um, term. And yet I think it has come to be seen as a racial term by future later historians talking about their impact on the British Isles. It's these foreign others that come, destroy the British Isles and and go back to these these distant homelands.
3: So do you believe the Vikings have been unfairly targeted? Is it fair to say that they were no more damaging in that sense than, say, the Anglo-Saxons or the Normans?
4: It's a difficult one. I do think they were very damaging. Um, I do think certainly the waves of destruction that were targeted um, at the coastlines, at the monasteries, at, at sort of vulnerable locations—they were devastating. And I think this idea of um, perhaps this religious and cultural difference between these groups of, sort of settled anglo saxon Christians, and these um, raiding trading military pagans, their worldviews, their outlooks were so completely different that it was a clashing of cultures that, that was um, that it has this very destructive aspect to it. Whether it is more or less destructive than any sort of raiding or settlement is difficult to determine. But the fact that the, their legacy has been written down by the Christians that they destroyed or damaged um, has coloured the uh, the, that sort of legacy uh, profoundly. The language used by Christian monks and Christian scholars to write about the, Vi- the Viking attacks is incredibly moving, incredibly you know passionate and colourful. And because we have these these accounts, um, that has lasted as you know an echo down through the ages of how dark and destructive these attacks were. I think any sort of um, any settlement and, and uh, raiding mission. Must have had a, a very destructive aspect to it, but the Viking, um, the Vikings, have had this this um, sort of caricature carved out for them in the art and in the literature by those people that they that they attacked. Uh, it's that history is written by the victors, cliche, isn't it? But that's how we know about them, and that's how they've that's how they've been carved into into history. Um, I think what happened after the initial Viking attacks is different. Again, I think there is this there's so much evidence for settlement, um, quite peaceful settlement, coexistence, uh, this idea that they uh, were able to integrate themselves with the native Anglo-Saxon people, that they took on board things like building high uh, stone crosses, weirdly. But they did actually, you know, mould themselves. There was a sense of syncretism going on. They, they were able to mould and adapt to the uh, to the people that they um, l- were now living alongside. And that aspect of the Viking um, you know these so-called Viking invasions. It's far less dramatic and destructive. It's actually quite peaceful. But alongside that, you get the movement of the great army, these battles being fought by these these fearsome uh, warriors in in massive numbers, really, for the time. So that aspect never really goes away. The the destructive, violent aspect never never fully goes away. Um, but it's a very complicated one and. It's complicated in as much as we have some evidence but not enough. That's different perhaps to the settlement of the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes where we have virtually no evidence and we have to piece it together with very little. Um, with the Vikings, the evidence we have colours it profi- um, colours our understanding of it uh, completely. This
3: idea of violence and invasion was that part of the Viking culture that they brought to Britain?
4: I think I think so. I think we can't get away from the fact that um the Viking worldview was dis- distinctly different from Anglo-Saxon England, where it was around sort of the eighth, ninth century. Go back to the sixth century, and there would have been far more in common. But since Saint Augustine, five nine seven, and the arrival of Christianity and this sort of missionary fervour with which Anglo-Saxons converted to Ang- uh, to Christianity, there these these different people pulled apart in terms of their imaginative worlds and also in terms of how they structured their societies. The Anglo-Saxons, were, their, their society was modelled more on the sort of ki- patterns of kingship that you see on the, on the Christian continent. So there was a greater degree of uh, bureaucracy, which was coupled with literacy, so paperwork. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And then these th- this idea of a spiritual framework, an afterlife that rewards people who are pious, who are humble, kind, the, these sorts of aspects, that is rewarded. That's very different to the Viking worldview, if we can use that term of, of you know, collectively of Vikings. Truer to speak more of, um, you know, the people of, of the North, the Scandinavian people. Their worldview was conditioned more by... Um, their pagan religion, in which you know warrior and the prestige of a warrior, the ability to fight, uh, to be heroic, to um, you get wealth and prestige and power. That was all celebrated within their religion. So the ultimate area of the afterlife that warriors wanted to get to is Valhalla, where you would feast and fight for all eternity, and little things like the idea that you're buried with no grave goods in the, in, in a christian burial because you don't need them everything you need will be taken care of by this divine and magnanimous god afterwards that's very different to the pagan worldview where you take your finest armor you take you know your horse you take food you take your clothes with you into the afterlife because it's an extension of that life on earth um it's it's a better version but it is not otherworldly it is just um the next world if you like and so i think these spiritual aspects have have conditioned the relationship between the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings, but also their political um, way of thinking of the world. The Viking tribes were still organized um, much more like the earlier Anglo-Saxons and Judish tribes were, with a lord who has loyal followers within the hall, within the comitatus that, um, you know, are loyal to him and will fight for him. And That there is a sense of um, greater political hierarchy developing over the course of the eighth and ninth century in Scandinavia. But there are still these disparate leaders, uh, lots of different um, warriors and leaders. That's in contrast to Anglo Saxon England, where you are seeing um, a much more rigid hierarchy coming into place, where a king is at the top and those people are loyal to him, pay him taxes. and he is supported by the bureaucracy and by the church. So I think you have a clash of, of, of people very much, a clash of worldviews and um, a clash of outlooks. And and because the, the Vikings weren't writing down their experience of their encounters in the British Isles, they, their voice has been lost, whereas these Christian Anglo-Saxons, are able to make these very impassioned pleas down through the centuries that, that still are very evocative and resonate.
3: And a lot of Viking cultural aspects and certainly linguistic ones have um, survived into later English and British history. Mm. Were these? Would you say they were more imposed by the Vikings on an unwilling population or was it a shared assimilation period? Did the local people take on some Viking ideas willingly?
4: I think, it, I think there was a sense of willingness, yes. I think when... When you think quite how extensive the influence of the Dane law was for example how much of the British Isles was you directly um, indebted to scandinavia were paying debts to them that that really shows that everything down almost to the thames was uh, was influenced in terms of culture fashion language these settlers these viking settlers they were setting up villages and they were intermarrying with the native population and so their effect was going to be you felt in terms of the language that people spoke and the way people communicated that there was a mutual intelligibility to some extent between Old English and Old Norse, but what we see linguistically is um, the introduction of more Old Norse loanwords, and certainly in the north of the country, a drift towards um, more sort of Norse uh, inflections and treatment of the language and accent as well. I think when you think about the, the very most northernmost isles, the Shetlands and the Orkneys, they were considered the Sutherland for. Certainly, for the Norwegian Vikings, and there, the the accent and the language was was very was was becoming very close to that spoken in in Norway at the time. Culturally, I think that there were it was quite reciprocal. I think that because Vikings were put in in positions of power they were made, well, they made themselves (laughs) the (laughs) landowners and the lords of the manor, if you like. They were holding the... The upper sort of strata of power they were the most powerful within society at that time and, and they were wealthy as well. they traded widely they were able to acquire the material wealth of the places that they inhabited so the way that they dressed the way they ate the way you know the things that entertained them that was high society so the people wanting to adhere with this sort of this level of society, maybe lower down the social rungs, these anglo saxons that were um, you know, had Vikings as their overlords, would start to dress like Vikings, would start to enjoy the same things. And so there's this sense in which the Anglo-Saxons did copy Viking fashions and tastes. But I think it turns the other way too. So I mentioned earlier about Stone High Crosses. They're a very good example of how the Vikings took an Anglo-Saxon art form and bent it to their own ends. So the High Cross up until the the 8th or 9th century was used as a statement of Christian power and authority. They were almost like miniature churches and you see carved on the side of them these narratives from um, the Bible, from the lives of saints, alongside Latin inscriptions, Um, and they were used set in stone on the landscape to show that the church was there, the church was permanent. People could go to that cross to have the sacraments and to hear mass. There must have been quite a lot of them, particularly in the north of England. I think they must have populated the landscape to an extent. The Viking settlers must have noticed them must have realized that they were important significant as meeting places as you know uh, these these beacons on the landscape and so instead of destroying them seeing them as some sort of christian threat they actually assimilate the form the form of the stone high cross but they put mythological scenes on them from their own pagan religions, so you see images of Thor fishing for the world serpent, or Odin, um, you yeah, know, hanging on the tree of knowledge. And these, are, you know, this is this is a really interesting exchange of culture and arts. Um, and I do think it shows that it was reciprocal. Then you look at finds of silver metalwork, even from right down in in sort of Wessex, in what was Anglo-Saxon Wessex. When you look. At, we- at the art of Wessex in the time of King Alfred, there are brooches, there are um, necklaces, there are bits of silverware that you can see have taken their style and their influence to some extent from from the Vikings, and that's in that last bastion of sort of Anglo-Saxon Christianity, Wessex. Even there, you see that they were that there was this exchange of of, of cultures.
3: So even though the Vikings came over as invaders, they didn't necessarily see themselves as culturally superior to the people they were conquering.
4: Culturally superior is interesting. Uh, In a way, I think there was a sense, I think there would have been a sense amongst the heroic warriors, the heroic warrior elite of the Viking settlers, that actually they were superior to the Anglo-Saxons. I think they saw Christian piety and Christian ideals as weak, I think they saw them as um, you know celebrating these human virtues that actually don 't help you in battle they don 't help you to defeat people like them who are incredibly strong, trained killers, if you like these these warriors who prize their, their their victory in battle above all things, so in that respect, I think there might have been a sense that you know people like King Alfred were maybe a weak king um that the people who rolled over and offered to pay the danegeld in order to secure their land that they were weak they didn't stand up and fight they you know they would rather pay for the vikings to go away um but because we don't have written evidence it's impossible to know how superior they saw themselves and a lot of this is uh, you know extrapolating from from finds from burials and you know from these ideas of greater things like 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 their world view but think that the Anglo-Saxons that wrote down these accounts of the Vikings certainly saw themselves as superior to them. They... They saw the Viking invaders very much as bloodthirsty wolves, these sort of animalistic, base humans that just showed no compassion, showed no mercy, just destroyed and stole from these these places of uh, spiritual richness. When you look at Alcuin's letter, um, when he describes the attacks on Lindisfarne, it really is this idea of bloodthirsty wolves shedding these sacred stones with with blood, blood of saints. Uh, so. In terms of who thought, you know, how they considered themselves superior to one another, I think it was it was reciprocal. I think both sides considered themselves superior. But the Vikings really did achieve an awful lot and defeat an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon rulers. Alfred gets the term the great because he did actually stop. The, um, the Viking settlement from absorbing the entire, uh, the, the entire expanse of, Eng- of Anglo-Saxon England. But it was still a relationship that depended on treaties, on you know, keeping the, the Vikings sweet, if you like. So I think you know, the Vikings do come out on top a lot of the time.
3: But so even though there was this mutual hostility, they, they, it didn't preclude cultural exchange and linguistic exchange?
4: I think there was, there was hostility and because of the nature of the Viking raids that, that you know, in the first wave, there was a sense that they came and, and went away again and they did take back plunder, slaves, and they didn't integrate so much with, with the native population. There must have been a great degree of hostility on the back of that, but once these larger numbers of Vikings were starting to settle, I think that changed the relationship and the dynamic once they were setting up, um, you know, workshops, homes, families, once they were starting to intermarry, I think then that mutual hostility did turn into, um, to some extent in some areas, um, a sense of living alongside one another and beginning to understand one another's um, cultures and languages better. Um, So when you look at Jorvik, Jorvik, for example, up in York, there you have... A sense in which the old York is, it ceases to be of relevance. Yorvik where the Vikings settle further up along the river, that is actually where they, they, they set up almost a new town and it's a town where the native population and the settled Vikings work alongside one another, and they find things that are, uh, you know, mutually beneficial. All people need blacksmiths. They need, um, you know, clothing, leatherworking. They need places to live. And so, rather than talking about these high ideals of religion and politics, on a very human level people can live alongside one another, even if there is, you know, th- there is a sense in which they need to work harder to understand each other's languages or, or cultures. So, um, yes, I think that the Vikings within a century had integrated certainly in the northern part of the country very well. And that is why I'm always upset by this idea of the Vikings being seen as other, as simply these aggressors that came and went. They became us. And it's hard to even strictly speak of Anglo-Saxons from this point onwards because they are this sort of Anglo-Saxon Viking hybrid. Not all of the population, but some of it, quite a lot of it. And it really flags up for me quite how multicultural and diverse the British Isles always has been. It always has been a place where um, People have come and settled and changed the complexion of of the the population and the culture and the art and the language. Uh, So you have the the Romans, you have the Celts, you have the Anglo-Saxons, you have the Vikings, you have the Normans. And so it goes on and on. And I always find that an exciting thing to enjoy rather than to to worry about. I think it is interesting to think about the Vikings impact on us genetically, uh, our own kind of heritage. Culturally, artistically, and in terms of our DNA.
3: That was Dr Yanina Ramirez. You can find out more about her work at her website, which is yaninaramirez.co.uk. And if you'd like to know more about Viking culture, then you might want to check out the exhibition Vikings, the Untold Story, at National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. More details of that at nms.ac.uk. And that is almost all for this week. Do let us know what you think. We're on email, podcast at com. You can also keep in touch with us on social media Twitter, we're at historyextra, Facebook.com forward slash historyextra. And to keep up with all our latest blogs, quizzes, galleries, and more, visit our website, historyextra.com. Next time, we'll be broadcasting one of the lectures from our recent First World War Day, so make sure you tune in and download for that. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.